Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. have accessed entry 1431.LK0429, certificate number 34056, Wide Skis. You're a skier, Ken? Grew up in the Northwest, you spent a lot of time in Korea, and uh, went to school in Utah, seems like... All ski destinations. There was just a Winter Olympics in Korea. That's right. The Olympics were held at Yongpyeong, where my friends who skied would occasionally go on weekends to ski. Yeah, it gets wintry there, doesn't it? In the mountains? Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's dry, cold wind coming down from Siberia. But uh, it's like a three or four hour bus drive. That was enough to discourage me from learning to ski at a time in my life when I could have been a bunny hill beginner. And now I feel like I missed my chance. And in Utah, you didn't, uh, I mean, some of the best skiing in the world is in. That's why we had, it's on the license plates. Park City. It says the greatest snow on earth. Yeah, it really is something. And I would go up to Park City because the restaurants were nice, but uh, that's why we had to leave the state. They found out we didn't ski. (laughs) <laughs> they said, hit the bricks. A bunch of very nice, a not very nice mob came over with torches and casseroles. Yes, super nice. And uh, took us to the state line. They took us to Winnemucca, Nevada and uh, let us go. <laughs> they gave you some, <laughs> gave you some jello, uh, jello squares. They brought a jello salad where yeah. the top was a mix of jello and coolip mm-hmm. and um, some delicious uh, cheesy potatoes. And uh, released us on the other side of the state line. Is Winnemucca considered the border of Utah? Because it seems a little bit into the state of Nevada. Oh, that's true. What am I thinking of? What's closer? Halfway across Mesquite? Oh, Mesquite. What's right across the border? (laughs) I'm not sure. It's the place where all the Utahns go to play slots and blackjack, right? Oh, right, 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 right. right. Uh, It's just a pile of cow skeletons, right? (laughs) The state of Utah? uh, No, no. That's one way to think about it. You mean the place where they go to gamble at the at the border? Yeah. Old cow skeleton, Nevada. Wendover. Wendover, Nevada. That's what I'm thinking. Oh. I guess Winnemucca starts with a W. It does. So I got it confused. Everything in northern Nevada starts with a W. Wendover is just a few hours west of Salt Lake. So that's where a lot of the uh, 
it's the Reno of right. crappy gambling, but from the other side. So you're willing to drive a couple hours from Salt Lake to gamble in crappy Nevada. And have $3 steak and eggs. But you won't drive three hours to go to learn to ski in Korea. I just feel like I was a lazy teen and I wasn't, uh, right. like I learned to swim as an adult for the same reason. Like I was like. Never got around to it. It seems easier to just not. <laughs> so as a result, I'm a, you know, I'm in my. 20s scrambling to learn all these uh, skills that I put off as a lazy kid. You're not wrong that it's easier to not. Uh, well, and, and when you're smaller, you're closer to the snow. Sure. It must be easier to learn to ski as a kid beyond the social pressures. The best part of learning to ski as a kid is that you can crash over and over and it doesn't hurt. Because kids crash all the time and it doesn't hurt. I don't know how. <laughs> Their number one activity is just falling down. Just falling down and not getting hurt. Kids will play whole games based on falling down. We, we got yelled at by the recess lady for playing like pretend to get shot and die in a cool way by jumping off the bleachers onto the side of the hill. And the recess lady was like, you guys can't do that. Yeah. And of course we're, you know, show us where in the rules we can't do that. And she said, I don't have to, I'm the recess lady. I continued to make good sport of falling down in dramatic ways into my twenties. But you do get to a point where suddenly you make little creaky noises getting out of a car. Yeah, it starts to hurt. And I'm still the dad who's like, you know, jumping down the last three steps and hopping up on the rockery or the railing when the kids do it. And I'm kind of at the limit of my, I can't be one of these old guys with a second family in my 60s because I will not be a fun dad. I've definitely started to make sounds. I don't think they're necessary, but they're sounds that are reminiscent of my dad. Like, oof, oof. It's the kind of sounds I used to make if I had to run a 5K, but right. now I make them like lifting a laundry hamper. <laughs> well, the Northwest is uh, famous also for skiing and winter sports. It doesn't have that powdery Utah snow necessarily. No, the snow here is often well, what we call cement uh, snow, <laughs> which is, is that sort of self-explanatory. Uh, walk, me through, cement. walk me through the difference. Like I, I understand that I want powder as a skier. Yeah. But why is that? So there's wet snow and dry snow is how they're described in skiing. And uh, dry snow, like you get in Utah and Wyoming, is light, fluffy crystals. We've talked about snow crystals before here on Omnibus. Light, fluffy, the, uh, the temperatures there are, you know, a little colder. The altitudes are a little higher. And the snow comes down as, uh, I think the crystals are like big and allow a lot of air to form between, you know, like the crystals right. come down and they, and they create big air spaces within them. And I guess it's that they have longer to crystallize as they fall. And, and how does that change the aesthetic or athletic experience of being a skier? Well, light snow is just easier to move around. As, you, as you've suggested, oh. skiing is difficult. Uh, it's a lot of exercise. And it's proportionate to how much work it is to just move your heavy skis through heavy snow. And when snow is light, you have a tendency to float to the top of it as you ski. You're actually going fast enough that you can, your, whatever, your conservation of momentum will keep you above the, and if, if you stop, do you sink? Yes, you do. Mm. Uh, but if you hit a big section of deep snow and it's light powder, uh, the snow will just explode in a big glamorous puff of you know, of like flying of snow. Warren in Warren Miller excitement. Yeah, it's, it's very fun to ski that style of snow. Pacific Northwest snow is denser, it's wetter. It often, like it's, it's a differential of only a couple of degrees before the snow turns to do slush. You get a, do you get a layer of ice on top? Uh, 
So icy skiing is typically thought of, we think of it as East Coast skiing, all that sort of uh, Vermont and Maine and upper New York State skiing where, you know, those are windier and lower altitude mountains. And there are a lot more skiers, I guess, on a lot less surface. So the mountains are small, right? I mean, Sun Valley or... um, some of the the western mountains they just go forever right. i mean just compare any western mountain to the berkshires right. and you, you could fit every mountain in vermont into the shadow of mount rainier and there are fewer people up there because it's the wide open mountain west whereas on the east coast like everybody from new york city is all going to they're all going to killington and just scraping every last inch of that already kind of wind blown icy snow away so if you're an east coast skier you're very accustomed to a kind of icy, chattering ski slope. That's why it's called Killington. It's just a bloodbath just kills as you, all yeah. those people just scramble onto the... Have you skied all these places, by the way? This seems like firsthand. No, I, you know, I grew up skiing. Uh, I learned to ski in Washington and then I moved to Alaska as a kid and was on the ski team there and was a ski racer. Are there decent resorts up there? Well, Alaska has... Uh, I mean, you can cross-country ski anywhere, obviously. You, you do it anywhere in town. You can cross-country ski right out of your house if you live in the majority of Anchorage. Uh, there aren't that many ski resorts. There's Mount Alieska in outside of Anchorage in Girdwood, Alaska. Just sounds like somebody pronounced Alaska in a fancy way. Yeah, Alieska. Oh, oh, oh I live in Alieska. Alieska. Oh, well, I'm going to move to Washington. Alieska is a very popular name for a husky dog if you own a husky. Uh, I'm sure there are 10,000 husky dogs named uh, Alieska. Oh, I had no idea. Uh, and I'm almost certain there are children now named Alieska, although I would not recommend it. Is it like the thing where you name your kid heaven spelled backwards? Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful sounding word, but it's a little precious to name a child. And is it from the same root as what, wherever Alaska comes from? Yes. Oh, okay. Alaska. Uh, it's just a different pronunciation. Popularly or... means the great land. I'm not sure if that's a direct translation, but. It sounds like the Russian version of Alaska, like. Yeah. Alaska. We sell you Alaska. It's like <laughs> Ensign Chekhov is negotiating with the, with the President Lincoln's cabinet. Uh, there's also a uh, ski resort in Juneau where I have been fortunate enough to ski during a. Uh, Ski exchange. I like uh, how you have the celebrity thing of saying that you were fortunate enough to do the things you've done. I was. Like I love when celebrities get interviewed and I was like, yeah, and then I was fortunate enough to be in a movie with uh, Julianne Moore. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to win the Olympics. Uh, the The resort in Juneau is called Eagle Crest and it's, uh, you know, it's also a small mountain. But the thing about Alaskan mountains is we have all the latitude, not just the latitude to be great skiers, but we are... Uh, we are at a higher latitude. And what does that give you? Well, what a higher latitude does is it re- it lowers the tree line. Oh. So uh, as you get down in lower latitudes, the trees just go up and up and up. You've got to go all the way to the top of the mountain to find bare slopes. Right. Whereas at Mount Alieska, for instance, which is only 3,000 feet above sea level, the mountain starts at sea level. The ocean is right there, visible from uh, from everywhere on the hill. This seems like a problem we could just solve with deforestation, something we're, as a species we're very good at. We are good, and, and if you're making a ski resort, uh, deforesting the hill is a big part of 
uh, making the resort. You chop down as many trees as you can. Otherwise, oh, people plow into them, and that's how Sonny Bono, Bono died. That's right. We I just called him kid. Sonny Bono. He did like he's, Sonny Bono. Like he's in you too now. He's really... Bono is so Sonny. <laughs> Who do you like, Sonny Bono or Sonny the Edge? <laughs> uh, we lost a Kennedy to a ski accident. Really? Skied into a tree? Skied into a tree. Like a lesser, well, like a spare one, right? Uh, yes, it was Michael Kennedy, one of Robert F. Kennedy's many children. Uh, the Kennedys. Uh, he, by the way, I just looked it up. He was playing football while on skis. Yeah, that's such a Kennedy move. Do they? So no matter what they're doing, you if you're a Kennedy, you have to be playing football at the same time. That's why J JFK Jr. died. He was playing football in that airplane. That's in, what in the fog. Well, think about his dad playing uh, football in that motorcade. What a terrible, <laughs> what a know. terrible place for a game. This Kennedy-based humor is terrible. It's in poor taste. I remember when my mom first heard, my mom and dad first heard my sister listening to the dead Kennedys in her room. Oh. And they were like, what is that noise? And Susan said, the dead Kennedys. And they were so offended. You know, my dad worked for JFK. Right. They were so offended. They couldn't believe it. That's funny because we think of that as kind of an edgelordy kind of, oh, we're the dead Kennedys. Yeah. But there actually was a generation that would not have taken that oh, they were well. furious. But uh, Mount Alaska, being both at sea level and adjacent to the sea, we had fairly wet snow, just as we do here at uh, Snoqualmie Pass or mm -hmm. White Pass. So you learn to ski a different way. You don't just kind of fluff along. You you have to work a little bit harder. So is there more skill involved or is it just more more of a more of a pull. It's more effort. They're different skills. I think it's regarded as easier to ski in powder, but also those are, it's a very different technique from skiing on groomed slopes, which is the term of art for long pistes that have been uh, smoothed over by kind of mountain Zambonis. Does they have machines? Uh, yeah. Big cats that drag sort of ski slope shaping tractors behind them, either chains or rollers. What about resorts that have to put up fake snow? Is that even worse than wet Northwest snow? No, that came about sort of uh, during my era of skiing, the realization that you could put big fans and spray water into them and create homemade ice crystals. So if you did it all night long, even if you hadn't gotten a lot of snow, you could you could build up a pack of snow. I think at Sochi they had to bring up truckloads because they were so afraid. You know, that was a very low latitude for a winter Olympics, obviously. Black Sea is like a beach destination if you're Russian. Well, and and in my own life, it's a sort of dramatic example of, and there's, you know, I'm sure there are people that would strongly disagree, but when I was a kid, we just got a lot more snow and a lot more cold weather in Alaska. Uh, there were multiple times that I would be at Mount Alyeska and there would be significant avalanches that closed the road back to Anchorage. I would have to miss Monday, sometimes Tuesday <laughs> at school because you just couldn't get back. They couldn't clear the avalanches. And now a couple of years ago, there was some winter in Anchorage, not but a couple of years ago where the whole winter went by and and the temperature never went below what would have formerly been a very normal yeah. threshold. We had a 79 degree winter day in Seattle here not too long ago. Yeah. So if they're skiing in the future, I mean, if, if any of the futurelings actually do something analogous to sliding down a mountain, they are maybe generating their own slime out of glands near their anus. Well, you know, there now are indoor ski resorts. I think the first one was built in a mall in Dubai. Yeah, Dubai does have one. And, uh, and I can't I, even, I need to look at a picture because I'm having a hard time picturing. It's pretty phenomenal. Is the, it a single, it's a single slope. It's just a big kind of air, air hanger that's higher on one it, end. It is, yeah. <laughs> but 
in addition to uh, the difficulty of skiing in different kinds of snow and the different techniques that are required to ski in powder or on ice or on nice groomed slopes, uh, the techniques of skiing have evolved over the last hundred years since skiing be- first became sort of popular. I assume the gear has too. I mean, it must have just been a guy on two sticks at some point. It was originally a guy on two sticks. It was. It didn't take long for the original kind of ski makers who were in a lot of cases just carving their own skis. Just old Finnish men with a lathe. They realized two things, which was a ski performed better if it had a certain amount of side cut from tip to tail. Tell me what that means. It gets narrower at the... Yeah. So the tail, or I'm sorry, the the front of the ski, the nose of the ski is wider than the middle of the ski, the waist. And then... And, and, and I need you to hop... Oh, it's wider than the waist. Yeah. And it gets wider again at the tail. So the, the, the sides of the ski over the length of the ski... It kind of bows in as a result of being carved. And uh, maybe this is jumping ahead, but are most skis still like that? They're, if I go to a ski store, some kind of ski emporium, the skis would in fact be wider. At uh, the tip and at, tail. At the tip and tail. Yeah. So this is uh, in large part kind of what we're talking about today. The original skis, they had a, a side cut that was fairly gradual. And the other element of a ski is the camber of the ski, which is... is that the- curve thing or? Well, it's, if you set a ski down on a table, the tip and tail will touch the table and the middle will be bowed. Yeah. And what that allows you to do is when you step on the ski and put your weight on the ski, the camber kind of pushes the tip and tail flat. But what it does is those side cuts then create a kind of, of, there's a radius then that is suggesting a turn. Right, so you your side cuts. If you lean one direction, that cut creates a natural curve in the side of the ski. If you were just on perfectly straight skis and you leaned, you would just continue to go straight on one edge. Right. But as you lean on a ski that has this side cut in it, and and as the camber pushes down, you're, you're on a curve. You're on a curve, and and this is the radius of your turn. And any ski that has side cuts into it then has a kind of built-in radius to the turns it naturally exactly, will Exactly, right. Like if it's more of a cut, it's going to be a tighter it's turn. It's going to be a tighter turn. Okay. And so ski building technology in its early days kind of started, there was a lot of experimentation about what would be the ideal kind of design of those early skis. And by the 1950s, ski design had sort of resolved itself to a certain general set of dimensions. And the side cut, which can be described as if you took a ski and set it on its side on a table, Mm -hmm. again, the nose and the tail would touch. And in the middle, there would be an arc where the sides had been cut in. And generally, the highest point of that arc would be in the middle of the ski and the sort of standard design was a seven millimeter tall oh, side it's cut. It's not much of a cut at all. Not much. The skis are hourglass shaped, but when you sit and look at them, it isn't completely evident that that hourglass shape exists. I think it's possible that I have looked at skis many times and if you had asked me, are these going to be narrower in the middle? I think I would have said, no, they're just parallel lines. Honestly, this is probably something that appeals to you a lot about skiing is that there's all this 
gear you can fetishize with elements of both fashion and performance. But to a beginner like me, it's terrifying. It's off-putting, the fact that I would have to understand all this gear in order to, like, I kind of panic when I'm picking a bowling ball, you know, like, I don't want the pink one or the blue one, 14, I can't remember what I used last time. Like the idea that I would have to understand the physics involved in ski gear, it's not going to happen. Well, and as soon as you introduce the idea of racing into skiing and really any kind of competitive performance, even just two people at the top of a mountain saying, I'll race you to the bottom. Different brands of skis and the different technologies they use to create stiffness, to create um, uh, the introduction of metal edges at the bottom of a ski so that the the metal would carve into ice or into the snow. Most skis now have metal edges. Almost all any ski would have metal edges. Not cross-country skis, but downhill skis. Yeah. Those edges allow you to really dig in as you push down on that camber and you create that curve. The edge also will then hold your turn. Do cross-country skis, by the way, have no side cut because you don't need to turn that way? Cross-country skis have a lot less side cut. Uh, You turn them differently and they're traditionally kind of straight, although they have a very, very tall camber because the spring of the camber is partly how you you? propel you. You you go boing, 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 right. Now, uh, cross-country ski design has changed a lot too. When I first learned to cross-country ski we would actually apply sticky tar to the bottom of the skis with brushes. You, they, would, they would heat up a pot of tar on, on top of a fire. And before a race, you would go dip your brush in and brush tar on the bottom of your ski so that... Just more traction? More traction. And so you can it, kind of push off with each step? And yeah. And then you would kind of force your ski to slide, but you had that because the, you would only paint the middle of the ski. So when you were... You could push off you, with a non-sticky yeah, part. push down off, this, off the sticky part, and then as you went boing, you would slide forward on the tips and tails. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout but downhill skis although there was a lot of competition between brands to develop new technologies to make their skis sort of competitive with one another. The general design sort of settled down in the 50s to be one where, you know, essentially you had about a seven millimeter radius or a seven millimeter side Side cut. cut. And the skis were a little bit wider in the front, a little bit narrower in the back. You had a sort of, uh, you know, like 90 millimeters width of the ski at the nose 73 millimeters 
of width of the ski at the waist and 81 at the back, which gave you a turning radius when you really dug into your turn of about 48 meters sort of radius of turn. How wide are my feet? How many millimeters wide are my feet? If that's what a Jennings is. Well, that's an interesting question and it doesn't, I like do are not, they, I wouldn't know. Are they considerably, they're, they're considerably narrower than one of these skis at the, at the narrow point or are they, is, is the side cut narrow enough that the, your skis are, uh, are narrower than a foot? Well, this is part of the- I mean, the, the boot makes your foot wider, obviously. The, the boot makes your foot wider, but if you look at ski boots, the, the whole way that you bind a ski boot to a ski, those designs of bindings have been changing throughout time too. And a ski boot, you'll notice, has the boot portion, the bulbous portion that's holding your foot, and it's sitting on top of a much narrower base. Yeah. And the height of that base can kind of get you up off of the ski in a way that, you know, the base of the boot is as narrow as the ski. Uh, you're, you are literally measuring the width of your foot. Right I have now. a ruler on my phone. Let's see. Do, 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 do. It looks like at the widest point, it's about... How many smoots? <laughs> It's uh, about nine centimeters, which would be about... What, 90 millimeters? 0.052 smoots. 0.052 smoots. So, yeah, so the ski is not that different than the widest part of your foot. Right, but the narrowest part of the ski is narrower than your foot. And that's why the... Well, the narrower part of my foot is also... Oh, yeah, what's the waist of your foot? I have like maybe fat old Russian women because my arches are flat. Yes. It's not much less than 80 millimeters though. So there were some limitations uh, about how skis could be built. And one of those limitations is, yeah, the width of your foot, right? If your ski would be too narrow in the middle and you leaned over, your boot would drag. Yeah. Uh, But there were also, uh, skis were built in sort of factory presses or there was factory equipment that kind of limited the dimensions of uh, how how radical you could be in the dimensions of your foot. But within the skiing community, because skis were, were more or less standardized, improvements in racing and improvements in ski technique, the energy went into changing the way skiing was practiced rather than thinking of it in terms of radical changes in the way skis were built. You mean like just technique things? Right. As opposed to what if skis look different? So skis were made with different stiffnesses. They were made with minor variations in What's the material, by the dimensions. way? Like did fiberglass skis start to replace wood at some point? Yeah, or? fiberglass skis with different constituencies of material in the core. Metal was added. A groove was put down the center of the ski for additional to sort sl- of... To sluice off sweat. Yeah, right. And and for, yeah, all these techniques for different, for speed and agility, there are different waxes, a whole culture of wa- hot wax mm-hmm. 
that was meant to make your skis faster in different conditions. So waxes were color coded and you would choose different waxes depending on the temperature and conditions that day. And do you feel like this stuff all worked? Like these were meaningful things or was there kind of lore and superstition around this is my wax? I mean, I would put wax on skis sometimes and the skis would be super fast. Other times you would put wax on and the skis would feel super sticky. And then there'd be long conversations on the ski lift about how you could use the wrong wax that morning. I mean, there was a lot of uh, voodoo associated with it. And there were people whose job was to prepare racers skis for the slopes and they would sit and put on hot wax and then you'd- It's like a pit crew. Then you'd scrape it off. Yeah. I mean, it it, uh, really was like a pit crew. But ski techniques change. And if you look at skiers, if you look at photographs of skiers in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s and 80s, you see real changes in the way that skiing is being practiced. People used to ski with their ankles very close together with their weight back on their skis. And as time went on, you realized, oh, if I lean forward, if I put my weight and my energy forward on the ski, I'm going to get I'll be more agile in the turns. I'll have my weight focused, you know, in the direction I'm traveling rather than leaning back with my tips way up in the air. You probably want to be aerodynamic too, right? You want to get down, but not down so far that you're not, that you don't have full flexibility in your knee and in your body. Um, Who is honking at us? I don't know. Why did we decide to do this show on a middle of an intersection this week? I'm fairly irritated. Let me just uh, go outside for a second. John is actually going out to yell at a neighbor. Well, I gave him the international, like, cool it sign. Okay, John's back in the bunker. So what what happened? It was just somebody parked out front. You're right, the weather has changed. It's starting to rain. Somebody at the house next door didn't want to get out of their car and go ring the doorbell. So they're out honking. Is that like an Uber or something? No, just some dum-dum that's probably coming to take their teenage daughter on a date. I thought it was like your fans. Oh, yeah. They come up in front of my house and honk all the time. It's part of the culture of my fan. <laughs> well, it's because uh, that song on your first record called Please Park in Front of My House <laughs> and Honk at Me. Like nobody understood that you were kind of in character there. Honk at me. Honk at me. It's a metaphorical honk. Hey, but you were saying something about uh, ski technique. Yeah, ski technique. Well, so in 1964... A couple of skiers, Peppy Stiegler and Billy Kidd, won won medals at the 64 Olympics on skis made by Kessler. And most skis were made in, you know, Austria, Germany, Switzerland. These are Italy at the time. And like a lot of industries, it became very um, bound by tradition and by some assumptions made about how skis best performed. But these Olympians that won in 64, they, uh, they were on a set of Kessley slalom skis and those skis sort of established a kind of what had been an informal set of dimensions, became a set of dimensions that were really regarded as industry standards. And skis continued to be made more or less according to this, essentially a seven millimeter side cut and, uh, 64 millimeter waist. They continued to make these skis all the way into the 80s. And in fact, the skis that I raced on when I was a a racer in the 70s and 80s were all built on this exact model. And you could take a pair of skis from 1969 and 
continue to ski them on the same hill, uh, skis that were made in 84. The Kessler run. <laughs> How many parsecs? <laughs> How many beard inch parsecs? Uh, uh, so it's like one of these many things where, uh, we, we see this a lot that something that appeared to be in a steady state suddenly with modernity just changed rapidly and it seems like everything's accelerating now. Well, so what dur- changed it during this period, what changed was ski technique. And by the time I was competitively racing in the eighties, people didn't, when they made a turn, the popular style was to take your inside ski, which is to say the ski that's uphill as you make your turn mm-hmm. uh, and lift it completely off the snow. So you're just on, you're just on your lower ski. You're just on your lower ski and on a single edge on that lower you're ski. You're like a figure skater. Right. And as you then shift your weight to make the turn in the opposite direction, you would put down your uphill ski, initiate a turn on its inside edge and lift up your downhill ski. And now you're on track to make this turn according to the radius of your ski. Design. Here's what I would do. Here's what I would do, John. Yes. I'd just go straight. I know. I feel like it would just be quicker. All yeah. these, all these guys are turning, making curly cues and radii. It's a and then lot they get quicker. to the bottom and I'm already there and they're like, what'd you do? And I was like, oh, I just went, I just went straight down. It's a lot quicker except that, uh, mountains, <laughs> which are made by God, for skiers. For skiers and for aminals, right? Mountains are also where eagles yeah. live and big, goats Big horn and sheep. Uh, they're made according to a uh, design that is derived from fractals, uh, which is to say that it is an unpredictable, I mean, predictable at a, at, if you zoom out far enough, mm-hmm. but uh, when you're actually on the surface. Uh, if you go straight, if you, go you, straight s- you might go off a cliff yeah, or into a ravine, into another skier, into a tree. If you're a Kennedy, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a Kennedy running a, a slant pass on, uh-huh. on skis if for some running, reason, running the, uh, running the, I can't, the option. I keep thinking about how you would play football on skis and I'm having a hard time. Well, you'd have to when, be a sporty. When the quarterback sport. drops back, he is going uphill. <laughs> I, th- I think it's a thing where you're skiing down the hill with a couple of your bohunk friends Just and you're throwing Tossing it back and forth yeah. like it's water pole. And then one of your friends dies. Um, so what was changing was this new style. And this was exemplified by the Mare brothers who were twin brothers from Washington state. Ooh, who local right, interest. Who, uh, who learned to ski up at Crystal Mountain, which is a, a very small and very isolated, weird little ski resort down between Packwood and Yakima uh, that their parents either owned or ran. And they were skiing on skis made by the K2 Company, which is also a Washington ski manufacturer from Vashon Island. Vashon Island is just uh, a short ferry ride That's right. from Seattle, but you suddenly feel like you're in the country when you get there because you are. There's dairy pastures, hundreds of unvaccinated kids running around. You go back 40 years in time when you cross over on that ferry. Well, or whatever whatever amount of time before the polio vaccine was invented. <laughs> you catch measles on the ferry. Uh, all of Washington's retired governors live there. But the K2 skis had, some of the innovations were the skis were longer and their tails were stiffer. And at somewhere along the line, the ski company Dynamique, and the word is just spelled dynamic, but, but it's, it's a European. It's French, so it's dynamique. They moved the ski boot back. They moved the, the center of the ski boot back six inches. Oh, it's not clear to me that you would want to be back on the ski. Why, why is that? 
what moving the boot back did was, although you're not leaning back, you do have, as you dig into your turn, if this, the tail of the ski is stiffer, if it's manufactured so that it's mm-hmm. stiffer, and you're further back on the ski, you're able to propel yourself off of the stiffness of the tail with more, you don't have as much uh, weight of the ski behind you. You're kind of sproinging out. Hmm. And this was again another development that wasn't visible, really. If you were just looking at a ski, you wouldn't say like, why is that guy so far back on his ski? It was just enough of a variation that it gave like the skiers who were skiing Dinamiques at the time, just fractions of a second of an edge. But Within I'm also I'm also suspicious of sports where um so much of the advantage is based on technology and now that's become every sport. But when I was a kid, I remember thinking auto racing. Well, they're just driving a car. That's the the car should win the award, like not not the Italian dude. Well, and this is true. It's probably a class argument too. Like you you've also got to be able to afford the new fancy hotness and fibers and synthetics every three years when they change. And and growing up in a ski culture, it is a rich person sport hmm. and kids and their parents that could afford new skis every year had the advantage of these sort of micro developments in technology where you really would sit on the lift and talk about one another's skis. And there were brands of skis that you patronized and brands that you didn't. But the claim was that every year, some new minor technology, some stiffness or some lack thereof had increased your performance. That's good for them if they can talk you into buying new skis every season. But within a typical ski race, the gap between the winner and the second and third place finishers is often a hundredth of a second. So a tiny change really can. And a tiny change in your ski style, in your strength, in your training, in your looking ahead, because picking a line down the mountain, picking a, a path through the course also started to change. It's no longer making big S turns through the gates, but you're trying to pick a path that gets you as close to the gate as you can in order to give you more setup for the subsequent That's gate. more, I, that's my idea about trying to go straight. You're just stealing well, my idea. That's exactly what people were trying to do. Go straighter and faster, but still turn. You have to turn to get, because ski, Fine. ski race course uh, uh, placers. <laughs> it's not like, uh, they don't put them all in a line, no. like, like croquet, where if all the wickets were in a line or whatever. No, they, they make it hard. They make it hard to get through. God, so mean. It really is. It's cruel. I like it. Like a lot of sports. It's the Swiss German Scandinavian background of the sport. It's they're severe. But when you talk about material differences, right, there are restrictions on how your baseball bat can be manufactured and how people, high the pine tar can be. Yeah. yeah. People would cork their bats with the idea that that would allow them to hit further home runs. You can't use aluminum bats in what the American the, league, the national league, I think both pro both major leagues in college, you see them and you can use aluminum bats in softball. It's why football is the sport of the developing world. Like it's just a, all you need is something bouncy of that size, you know, but if, I'm if sure it can hold air. I'm sure the Federation Internationale do football uh, has real requirements of how how sure. professional soccer balls are made. Well, there all the money is probably to be made in shoes. Imagine how much, I mean, think about golf clubs and golf drivers and the changing technology and the expense of yeah. having the new right. putter. Or the, the illusion of changing technology, probably. Well, and tennis too. Uh, uh, tennis rackets used to be wood rackets with 
pretty small heads. And then Prince came out with not, not the musician, but the company. That would be crazy if, if Prince, the musician, <laughs> came out with a line of tennis wins. He was the one that revolutionized tennis. I've been in my studio and I've, I've discovered a funkier racket. <laughs> but, you know, those giant-headed rackets that Prince came out with, which originally were just for beginners, kind of like, make yeah. it easier. And then people realized the sweet spot was all this much bigger and tennis became more fun. Swimming is faster. a sport where like, you know, the re records are essentially meaningless now because as soon as a new slicker swimsuit fiber comes out, all the records will be gone. You can, you know, you'll beat the record by five seconds if your suit is made out of swift lawn or whatever. Right. Super crazy. But this is the era in skiing when you started to see those ski races where uh, slalom skiers were suddenly hitting all the flags and, uh, right. That's what you see now. And that's okay. Right. Uh, well, yeah, it's crucial to it. And I was there at the transition. Originally those poles for a ski course were made out of bamboo wrapped in tape. <laughs> and when people started cutting closer and closer to the gates where they were hitting the gates, ow, ow, the ow. first, the first innovation was that ski sweaters started to have padding in them, <laughs> like almost like football garments, <laughs> except they were wool sweaters. Yeah. And uh, those 80s ski sweaters were all have ribbed padding in the arms and shoulders. And then as time went on, people got closer and closer to the bamboo until they were just breaking bamboo poles. And the new innovation then was uh, that they would make the ski gates out of plastic. And at the bottom, there would be like a spring, like a springy spring. So it's like a, a weeble. It wobbles, right. but it doesn't fall down. So you'd hit them and the thing would go, boing, and then it would come back up. Now, some... Times if you did it wrong or if you were unfortunate, the thing would whack down, hit the snow, and then come back up back and hit you, you right in the face. I'll, I'll say it. I don't like this. I don't like it when they, it, it seems like it's, you know, I get why you would cut it as close as you can. But when I watch skiing on TV and all the flags are going down, I'm like, it's like they're hitting every one. Yeah. You know, it's well, like a, are. it seems like a, you know, in a pole vault or hurdles, you don't want the thing to fall down. The sport should be constructed such that the object stays <laughs> erect and beautiful while they cut it close. Well, so the gate, you know, you have to have a gate because you're looking pretty far ahead in a ski race to make sure that you're thinking in advance how you're going to be, you know, you're thinking yeah. three gates ahead. Yeah. And so you need a pole to indicate where it is you're headed. Um, but when you're actually in the turn through a gate, you're not thinking about where you are. And ideally your skis and boots are as close to the gate as they can be, at which point your body is leaned all the way over. You're physically yeah. way on the outside of the gate. Uh, it's just your ankles are, are knocking the gate down. They should be virtual. They should be lasers or something. Right. They should. We can all agree. <laughs> they should be if, They if should be lasers. one thing you take out of this episode, it's that me, a person who knows nothing about skiing, thinks there should be more lasers. Well, what they should be is killer lasers. So that if, wow. you, if you mess <laughs> like, up. Just slices just, off part of your yeah, leg. just cuts your whole body in half. So that would change the sport of skiing. I think skiing should be a blood sport. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com start. But at this point now, we're talking about the mid-80s, where ski design has been more or less static with these minor innovations. A couple of things happened. One of them was the advent of snowboarding as popular sport. Mm. And snowboards were not bound by any traditional manufacturing technique. Or by any legal drug use. <laughs> um, snowboards were not, they were bound by no convention. And introducing snowboarders onto ski hills was very controversial. Right. Uh, to this day, right? It's a, there's tension? Honestly, there is tension. And having, I just spent a week up at Whistler doing some skiing and skiers and snowboarders approach the mountain so differently. Uh, the, their relationship to the fall line, their relationship to the way you approach the landscape of going downhill is just so different that they really, they are incompatible. It must be like a deep seated difference in the brain. It must well, be two personality types. It is because on skis, you're pointing your body you're pointing the tips of your toes straight down. I mean, you're going in the direction that your toes are pointed. You're looking down and going down. On a snowboard, you're sideways on the on your mode of transportation. So you're there are plenty of times when you're in a turn where your toes are facing uphill and then your toes are facing down, but you're moving sideways relative to where your toes are pointing. And so when you look at a certain slope, you see your path down that slope in your imagination. You just see it differently. Mm -hmm. If as a skier, if I follow a group of snowboarders down the mountain, they take me down the, even a mountain I know really well, they take me down the mountain in a route I would never, it's just not a way I would go. Do you like that? Do you like seeing the snowboarders view of the, of the hill? It's a challenge. Yeah. It, it makes hills that I'm very familiar with seem new because like, why would I ever choose this route? But these guys think of it as, I mean, my sister made a transition from skiing to snowboarding at a pretty young age. She preferred snowboarding for many years and she became an excellent snowboarder, a competitive one, just before snowboarding became really professionalized, before it was in the Olympics, before there was even a culture of it, before snowboard magazine became a common thing. And in particular, before women in snowboarding were recognized as a competitive force. So Susan was a, a, an excellent snowboarder. She'd been an excellent skier. And yet she was just a little too early in the sport to have turned it into a career. Could she have been an Olympian? Yeah, she could have. Oh, wow. Uh, when she was a downhill skier, she was on the, the ski team at Alyeska right. and was a, consistently a champion. And the girls who were her consistent competitors and were always coming in second and third and despised my sister because my sister was not rich or cool, those two girls went on to be on the U.S. ski team. So, and Susan was 
was better than they she were. Always she was just better, way better than they. But she had made the tradition to snowboarding, partly be under the influence of marijuana. <laughs> like that's when, when you get offered your first joint, somebody should tell you, you will be in the Olympics that's if right. you don't light this. You're choosing right now. Do you want to be in the Olympics or do you want to enjoy Adult Swim a little more? That's right. And I think Susan looks back and wishes that she had, she said to me one time, we were, I don't know what we were doing, but she said, I had this lightning bolt moment where I realized that I could have gone to the Olympics and that that is a singular moment in a person's life, that I may have been put here to go to the Olympics and I didn't. I opted out of it for dumb reasons because I like the cure. <laughs> and I'm skeptical of that whole thing. And here's why. Because the Olympians are all super young. Yeah. They're all like 22 and they either won or lost on the biggest stage, but they still have 50 to 70 years to navigate. That can't, that can't be what defines them. Well, they do. They do but uh, one of the kids on our ski team from this era, Tommy Moe. Oh, uh, you, went, you grew up with Tommy Moe. I do and grew up skiing with him. Went to a Metallica concert and a uh, and a uh, the original reunion tour of Leonard Skinner. But luckily, you didn't offer him any drugs. Or <laughs> no, he, no, no, no. He we would have turned into a snowboarder. We were both totally on drugs. But he um, <laughs> he went on to win a gold and a silver medal in the '94 Olympics and became the first American man to win two medals in skiing in the Olympics in the same year. So he became a real. Uh, I mean, we were all stunned by his victories and he came out of our ski program. Uh, even I, a person who knows nothing about skiing, has heard of him. Yeah. And, and so, and Susan was competitive and on the same ski team with him and she was like the number one girl of her age group in her era. So there was a, she feels like there was a missed opportunity. Now she didn't, she got out and into snowboarding in her early to mid teens. So of course a lot of things could happen or could have happened on her way to the Olympics, but let's not dwell on Susan. Certainly not on counterfactual alternate universe, Susan. <laughs> but at the, in the late 80s, uh, in addition to snowboarding, kind of expanding people's minds about the construction of these snow conveyances, mm -hmm. there were also just kind of a couple of happy accidents in the course of trying to teach people how to ski and teach people how skiing works. The Olin Company made a sort of demonstration ski called the Albert, which was a ski to explain how turning worked. Is it the equivalent of Prince's big tennis rackets for dummies? It was. They made the, the, the side cut of the ski, uh, they exaggerated it in order to show to beginners or to ski instructors, like, here's how it works. You push down, you lean, and the radius mm -hmm. makes you turn. Because everything's amplified on a thing with a bigger radius. Right. And when ski instructors saw it, they said, uh, that's cool. Why don't you make some of those and we'll use them. We'll, we'll make these demonstrations kind of with these funny skis and, uh, and it will help us. And at that same point in time, uh, a Slovenian from Ljubljana. A Slovenian. Yeah. By the name of Jurij or Jurij Franco, and I do not know how to pronounce the first name, J-U-R-I-J, but I'm going to say Yurig or Yurig. Yeah, Yurig. Yeah, it's, pro I, it's probably there, Yuri, which is George. Yeah, right? Yuri, right. Let's say that. Although the ending J, I don't, I'm not sure where to put it. If Slovenian is the new international language of the future, we will hear about it. But uh, he was working, kind of experimenting for the Alond company. 
And he came up with a ski with the dimensions of 110 millimeters at the tip, which is considerably wider than what we've been talking about before as the kind of standard shape. And 63 millimeters at the waist and 105 at the tail. Uh, So it's also narrower at the waist, it looks like, or not? Yeah, it's narrower at the waist and wider at the tips. Looks like a Q-tip. And it was was a radical notion. They put it into production after a couple of years of experimentation. People were very, very doubtful about it within the skiing community. Like it seemed like a kind of what we would have called then a free dogger ski, which is to say not a serious ski. And what's the reason? It's it's just, there's no way it's faster? Or? Well, it was just, yeah, it, it would be less stable, we assumed, because a wider, you know, a flatter, wider, longer ski at great speeds would sort of hold you to the ground. Yeah, as a layperson, you try to imagine somebody skiing on water skis and you're like, no, like the wider it gets, the less whatever is fast and agile about skiing would go away. Right. But it turned out when these skis kind of made it out of the initial sort of test phase, Elan released the ski. It was called the SCX or Side Cut X Experimental in 1993. They blew people's minds. Suddenly there was this brand new innovation that no one had thought of which was make that radius tighter and make those tips fatter. And the skis were hard to make. You, a lot of the, the equipment, the industrial equipment that all these companies had invested in to make skis, you couldn't make a 110 millimeter wide tip. Like the 100 millimeters was as wide as the machines would go. But these skis turned medium skiers into good skiers. What were what was it like when you first tried these wider skis? Do you have to relearn stuff or is it just immediately this is like skiing but on steroids? Well, unfortunately for me, by 1993, I had transitioned from being a skier and a person that was part of an outdoor world into a grunge denizen and club worker and dark clothes wearing downtown cigarette smoker. Was your family supportive of your transition? They were not. No, uh, <laughs> they were they were not into it at all. They would not use your new pronouns. But I did not have money and my parents cut me off and I was not part of the ski culture anymore. And so I heard rumblings. I heard echoes that ski design had changed and I was extremely dubious. And even though I had no investment in it, it's not like I was up there skiing on them or watching people ski on them. But even in my completely outside world, I still had very strong opinions about skis because I'd grown up having very strong opinions. All the other ski companies recognized that this was a true innovation and they all started working on designs of their own. And our own K2 company here from Vashon Island came out with a series of new skis that had side cuts, the K2 1 through 4. Were those the ones? Were those the ones that kind of broke it that everybody... What happened was in 1996, a skier by the name of Bodie Miller, Mm. who was on the U.S. ski team... Again, even I know Bodie Miller. ...went into the Olympics on a pair of K2 4s. So let me ask you this question. Is there an Air Bud problem here? Like what... Do the rules of skiing preclude any particular design of No, ski? there wasn't a system that said you can't use titanium 
you can't cork your bats. You can't use titanium. So it really is just energy. put something on your feet and get to the bottom of the mountain. Right. And because it's difficult enough to do that, like, hey, if you've got an innovation here, like, go for it. It's not like in car racing yeah. where they put limitations on displacement. Could you put rockets on the back of your skis? You could not. I don't think you could use rockets. Could you have a parachute with a Union Jack on it, like at the beginning of Spy Who Loved Me? It would not help you go faster <laughs> through a race course. That's probably true. But Bodie Miller, on his K24s, won... Uh, the Olympics and won. He won the whole Olympics. He did. He at won the a, end. <laughs> at the end. As you know, at the closing ceremonies, they ha- pit all the gold medalists <laughs> against each other in a big Royal Rumble to see who wins the Olympics. That's right. They hand each of them a <laughs> British flag uh, parachute and a machete. <laughs> no, Bodie Miller became the winningest skier in American ski history. Real celebrity. Like even if you were not a ski culture person, you would see him on you know, Zima ads or whatever. He was a big shot. And his ski dimensions were slightly less radical. It was the, his skis were built with a 98 millimeter tip, 65 millimeter waists and 87 millimeter uh, tails. But that was the beginning of the side cut revolution. And it was represented in the following sort of explosion of sales. In 1995, 3% of the skis sold uh, had this innovative side cut. Okay. In 1996, one year later, 50% of all <laughs> skis were built this way. And it's all Bodie Miller, right? And by, that's right. And by 1997, skinny skis, which is to say the skis that had been- Used the, to be formerly regular skis. Only skis that you could buy were being remaindered by the thousands. Uh, no one was buying. Do you know the word retronym? No. It's when you actually have to- change a word because the default thing it used to apply to is no longer the default, uh-huh. like having to say analog clock or right. acoustic guitar. Those used to be just clocks and guitars. So yeah, like we now have a name for wide skis, right? We just call them skis. Yeah. Well, no. So then in the immediate aftermath of this incredible transition that made skiing easier, that made it more fun, that made uh, made it possible for amateur skiers to learn the sport a lot faster, to be making kind of exciting and beautiful turns. These turns held better. There was less slipping, chattering, less out of controlness in skiing. Then all of a sudden, all bets were off in terms of ski design. And people were trying every possible thing you could. You know, skis that had incredible B-shaped designs. uh, And then, increasingly, wide skis. Skis that technology never would have enabled us to build before, uh, which were ideal for powder. The, the first wide skis actually were snowboards that they just cut in half and said, all right, this is now, uh, we're going to put one on each of your feet. And it's like a movie where the guy's riding on something and then some kind of buzzsaw cuts it in half. And he suddenly he's like, Whoa, I've just invented a new thing. And wide skis really got you up out of the snow, and it was very much like it changed what powder skiing was. Are these even wider than the stuff we've talked about so far? So wide skis will go like 150 millimeters at the tip, 126 millimeters at the waist. So twice, like it's it's two two old-timey skis put together. They're crazy. And um, ski boot design changed in order to get your boot up higher so that the waist could be narrower on some of these, these turny skis. The wide skis actually changed the way ski resorts and skiing happened. 
because wide skis are not super good on icy slopes, certainly. And so people stopped going skiing all the time and they sat and waited for powder days. And, and if so, you're, and if you're a resort in a, in an area that doesn't have powder, did, did people just see all their business get lost? Uh, I think resorts that routinely have powder now see that powder is a whole genre of skiing and people don't even bother the other way. Mm -hmm. If you're Mount Alieska or a Killington where there's no powder, people are still going to go skiing. They're just going to use different skis. It's not like you can drive to another option. Right. What's now uh, the final fallout is that increasingly orthopedic surgeons and orthopedists have discovered that if you're using skis with that are that are wide, you know, wide-waisted skis, the additional torque that's put on your body when you go into these turns is like destroying people's knees. And what they realized as they changed the ski design was they needed to make the ski shorter. Mm. Uh, what were formerly 200 centimeter long skis were now being shrunk down to 180, 160 in order to reduce some of the pressure some of the energy at the at these longer lengths. But now there's a kind of movement within the doctor, because a lot of doctors ski also, as I say, it's a rich people's game. You can't play golf year round. Right. So now there's a little bit of a backlash against the widest skis because they're screwing people up. We made skiing super fun, but now it just shreds your body, which is true of you know, pretty much a lot of things you can shred your body with are super fun. Yeah, they are. We just, we just, <laughs> we just we turned skiing into a weaponized drug. But skiing is forever changed. The The deep side cuts, the, uh, the different geometries of skis for different terrains and different conditions. There's no putting that genie back in the bottle. And the last time I went up to a mountain with my old skis, my old 1987 Vocal... Why did you bring skis. those? You must have new skis. Because I loved them. I, I, you know, those were great skis and I wanted to ski on them. I took them into the ski shop because I wanted to get, you know, the bindings adjusted. And they all stared at them. You know, the young kids had never seen them. You're like a guy with a steam powered automobile. Yeah. They got the old guy from the back office to come <laughs> out and the old guy, you know, was 37 and looked <laughs> at him and said, I remember the grownups wearing those <laughs> in ye olden times. And uh, they refused to work on them. The shop said our insurance won't allow us to uh, do any kind of maintenance on this. So, And I said, look, loan me your tools. I'll sign. And they, 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 I told them I'd sign a release. And they brought out a piece of paper and I wrote on it. I hereby absolve <laughs> the staff of Snoqualmie Pass uh, from any liability as they loan me their screwdrivers. Please let me use your Mr. Burns skis. And that concludes Wide Skis. Entry 1431.LK0429, certificate number 34056, in the Omnibus. Now, wouldn't it be great if there were this kind of sea change in terms of the internet? Like suddenly the whole industry realized we've been using the internet wrong, it's making us very unhappy. We need to change the dimensions of the internet. What if the internet were six centimeters wider in one part and like 10 centimeters narrower in another part? We can't just improve our technique anymore. It's not just a question of lifting up our right. inside internet. We are on the wrong websites, period. 
I think it has to be. I think the internet has to go away and a new internet takes its place. We can't just adjust. We've been trying to adjust and it's, it's just making us miserable. So we speak to you from a time when John and I were so naive, we still had Twitter accounts at, at John Roderick and at Ken Jennings. John had an Instagram account. We made sure that at Omnibus Project was represented on all the social media yes. platforms, yes. on the information superhighway. Oh, that's right. In a series of tubes. We would even read, what if the tubes were narrower? Uh, well, they would. That's an Alaska reference. They would constrain. It is. It is Ted Stevens, my uncle's former law partner. I thought you were going to say my uncle's former lover. And I'm sure it was just a few milliseconds. No. But like in my brain, I had like a full world opening up. I know. Wouldn't that have been (laughs) a different reality? Uh, If we constricted the tubes of the internet, I guess uh, the pressure would go up. There's an awful lot of pressure on there now. What if just all the Pepe memes couldn't fit anymore? If you just just squeeze the internet. I'll sign the waiver that says, I'll grab the tube and see what happens. Bad Pepe memes can go, but there are some Pepe memes that predate Donald Trump that I feel like were pretty good memes. What if we squeeze the internet down a little tighter so that uh, only 3chan could fit? Oh, only 3chan. You lost a full quarter of your (laughs) chan. Uh, John and I were so blinkered that we even read emails that were sent to us at uh, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. A bunch of dopes we were. We couldn't stay away from the Futurelings, which was a, a Facebook page, discussion page revolving around the uh, the contents and uh, and doings of the omnibus. Ken likes to look at the Futurelink site and then read it aloud to me while I sit across from him not looking at Is that it. the only way you ever get on the internet? <laughs> is to have somebody read it aloud to you? I, I love the idea of like kind of reading the internet to, you know, the blind or disabled. You know? Yeah. And then somebody said, uh, check this out, mom. Oh, and then there's a picture of somebody wiping out on a skateboard. Okay, I'm scrolling down. You're like, oh, <laughs> did you know that the futurelings? I'm like, yeah, okay, well, you just go on. You just go right on ahead. Are you saying you're not interested in the news I bring you? From, I am from... super duper 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 interested. They're going to be talking about skiing in a while. Yeah. Like we can, we can change, like we just talk about stuff. And it changes the pixels on this page. They're all going to be skiing pixels in a matter of, of weeks. We had one offline way of interacting with people. This is the, uh, the old narrow ski way. We would encourage people to send us physical uh, missives and media and artifacts at our post office box, which was the Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Can you imagine a time when people would send packages to their favorite podcasters. Futurelings, you must be fairly gobsmacked. They, uh, the podcasters of the future get uh, holograms of care packages. I bet they just get bitcoins pouring in. <laughs> just like in Wendover. Listeners, Futurelings, sentient icebergs from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, except as it pertains to destroying the internet and rebuilding it in a new image. Yeah, what if it's a virtual cataclysm, like a digital cataclysm? I support it as long as all of our material material is not wiped from the cloud. A virtual comet hits the Earth. Its cloud is made of 
internet destroying uh, uh, photons or tachyons or gravitons of some kind. Right. The internet's gone. Everything in the cloud is gone. We need to measure it in barns. But I have all my, um, you know, I have all the Pink Panther movies on DVD, so I'm good. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. If you do one more note, you have to pay the Henry Mancini estate $100,000. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.